take your Bibles out, I'm going to have you find actually three passages of Scripture tonight. First of all, if you would find the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi, okay? No, Donnie, that's not in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. Couldn't resist. <laughs> and then if you would find the book of First Corinthians chapter 16 and then Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at all of these various passages tonight. So first of all, find Malachi. And uh, let's just begin by reading this book tonight, uh, chapter 1, beginning there in verse 6. I want you to notice that he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. All that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Then if you turn over to chapter 3 of the same book, Malachi chapter 3. And pick up reading with me in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and and contributions or offerings. You're cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Looking tonight at the stewardship 
uh, stewardship and giving. Now, folks, there's a story told about a, a circus, different circus acts that were going on, and in one of the acts was a strong man. And he was doing all sorts of great feats of just tremendous strength. And he got to the end of his portion of the show, and he took out a large orange, and he began squeezing that orange. And he began squeezing it until all the juice started pouring out of that orange. And he had an iron grip, and he just continued, and he continued, and he continued until every drop of that orange was gone. And then he tried some more, and then it wouldn't give up anymore. And he said, I tell you what, I'll make a special challenge to anybody in the audience if you can come and take this same orange and get any more out of it. If you can get even one more drop out of it, you'll get a special prize. Well, this frail little skinny man from the congregation got up and he walked down there and he said, I'll take that challenge. And he took that orange from that big old strong man and he began to squeeze and he got another drop out. And everybody was astonished. And the strong man said, sir, in all of my times of doing these shows, I've never had anybody come up after me and grab hold of that orange and be able to get anything out of it. How in the world were you able to accomplish this? He said, well, that's easy, sir. I'm the treasurer at my local Baptist church. <laughs> <laughs> now the great reformer Martin Luther said that every man is in need of three conversions the conversion of his heart and soul the conversion of his mind and the conversion of his pocketbook now so far we, we in this series on stewardship We've not talked about money. We're going to do that tonight. Uh, you know, we've talked about being stewards of God's truth. As Paul said to Timothy, uh, Timothy, you need to guard that deposit that has been entrusted to you. He was speaking of the precious word of God. The Bible tells us that we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And so we're to be stewards of God's truth. And then we went from there to talking about we need to be stewards of our lives. Romans 12.1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice unto God. And so there's the stewardship of your life. Everything you are, you're to offer to God. You're to make an offering of yourself. And then next we cover the stewardship of our spiritual gifts at conversion. Every person uh, gets the Holy Spirit and gets at least one spiritual gift that is designed for the edification of the church. And then last week we looked at the stewardship of our time where Paul said that we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. Well, tonight we're going to conclude this series by looking at the stewardship of our monetary resources. 
And what we need to see is that God owns it all. And he only asks for a portion of it as a part of our worship. Now, first thing I want you to write down tonight as, as you uh, look at that point number one on your page. Write down, first of all, honor God with your giving. Honor God with your giving. From Malachi 1 that we just read. Now what was the problem that was going on in chapter 1 of the book of Malachi? What problem do you notice there? What, what, what is it that they were giving to God and not giving to God? They weren't giving Him the best. Remember the offerings were to be without spot and blemish? What were they offering to God? The lame and the blind. They were giving to God the leftovers. That's all. They were giving to God that which cost them nothing. Remember what King David said about that? He said, I will not give to God an offering that cost me nothing. But in Malachi's time, they were doing that. Who remembers, does anybody remember the historical background of the book of Malachi and sort of the, the reason for the apathy and so forth that had set in? They'd returned from exile. They'd rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. And what were they expecting was going to happen when they rebuilt that temple? They were expecting the glory of God to move in like had happened back when Solomon built that first temple. They were expecting that God was about to send the Messiah too and, and God was going to establish the throne of David and, and none of these things had happened like they expected. In fact, life had just kind of gotten back to normal and they were in the routine of daily life, daily living, and, and weekly worship again. Same old routine. And what had happened to them in, in that state? They grew discouraged because things had not panned out the way they were expecting. And they grew apathetic and they grew complacent. And in the book of Malachi you find that the priests were not even honoring God anymore by offering the best. And they weren't teaching the people the word of God. And the people were bringing to them again just the leftovers. Just the leftover things. The lame and the blind. The, if there were animals in their, in their uh, herds that they weren't going to be able to do with anything with anyway because they were lame or blind. They'd say, oh I know what I'll do. I'll take that down to the temple. I'll give God that. And they were keeping the best for themselves. And, and, and Malachi asked them a series of questions here. First of all, God says through Malachi, he says, try offering that to your governor. Do you think he will accept that? Do you think he'll accept that? No. God says, then why do you think I'm going to accept that and show favor to you? Folks, we oftentimes are guilty of giving more to men than we give to God. 
We give to ourselves. We give to our bosses. We give to our kids. We make sure that we have everything we need and even things that we desire. And maybe we'll get around to giving God leftovers if there are even some of those to give. That's what they were doing. And look at what God says in verse 10. He basically says, don't give me anything if you're not uh, going to give me the best. If you're going to give me just the leftovers, I wish one of you would go to the doors of the temple and just shut it that you wouldn't even come into my temple, my house to begin with because as it is, you're coming in here and you are profaning my name and do you not understand my name is to be esteemed and held as holy and proclaimed among the nations. And what you're doing instead is disgracing my name. God wants and deserves our very best. Now, not giving uh, God, not giving to God like we should, sometimes surfaces in, in other areas. You look at verse 12, and you see in verse 12 that they were not honoring God in their service. He says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and the fruit that, that its food may be despised, but you say, what a weariness this is. The priests were serving and they had the attitude that the temple service was wearisome. And that's the way the people had started looking at their service to God. I've got to get up and drag myself down to the temple and do what I'm supposed to do. You know, just kind of drag themselves down there in drudgery. No joy in their hearts. Just serving God out of uh, obligation and, and not really finding any fulfillment in any of it. And God was dishonored by that. And again, the priests weren't teaching the word of God. You flip over to chapter 2 and you see in verse 11 there they weren't honoring God in their marriages. In their apathy, they were choosing unbelieving spouses, even out of other nations. They were divorcing the wife of their youth to marry younger foreign wives. And so they were becoming unequally yoked. I talked a little bit about that this morning, how God forbade that. But they were doing that. The result of all this that they were doing, God was saying in chapter 3, the Lord you are seeking is going to come. Make no mistake about it. He's going to come. But when he comes, it's not going to be like you think. When he comes, you think that's going to be glory day. But he says, those who have been doing me this way, when I, when I do come, it's not going to be glory for them. It's going to be judgment. And it's not going to be pretty. Well, a second thing I want you to notice that he was telling them to do in chapter 3, second point there you can fill in is honor God in tithes and offerings. Honor God in tithes and offerings. 
beginning there in verse 3. I won't read it again right now. We just did so a moment ago. But mark off uh, verses 8 down through 12. They had failed to honor God with tithes. Now, the word tithe comes from a Hebrew word that means one-tenth. The Bible teaches that one-tenth of our increase belongs to God, but they were withholding that from God. Now, folks, we we need to see that God has a plan for everything, doesn't he? He had a plan for creation when he he created. He he created certain things on day one and said, this is good. Day two, this is good. Day three, this is good. Day four, this is good. So forth and so on. God had a plan for that. God had a plan for redemption. The Bible says Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. Calvary was an, an afterthought. That was all along in the plan and purpose of God. God's got a plan for the church that the New Testament speaks of. and God's got a plan for the support of the church. And his plan for the support of the church and his kingdom's work in the world is the tithe. Now, it's interesting how often the Bible speaks of money and possessions. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer Less than 500 on faith, but more than 2,300, uh, 2,350, more than that, having to do with money and possessions. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money and possessions. Boy, I realize people don't want to hear that today, do they? During an examination, a rookie police officer was asked what strategy he would use to disperse a crowd. You know what he said? He said, I'd get the plates out, the offering plates, and pass the plate. (laughs) I think of a story Flip Wilson told. Preacher was trying to get his people to be more enthusiastic about their church. The preacher said in his sermon, if this church is going to get anywhere, it's got to learn to crawl. The people said, let it crawl, preacher, let it crawl. Then he said, after it learns to crawl, it's got to learn to walk. And the people said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. And he got all excited and then shouted, after this church learns to walk, it's got to learn to run. They said, let it run, preacher, let it run. And then he said, and if this church is going to run, it's going to have to learn how to give. And the preacher uh, and the people shouted out, let it crawl, preacher, let it crawl. (laughs) Tragically, that's the attitude of many, isn't it? It was the attitude of those in Malachi's day. And, and apparently it's a prevailing attitude today. Ron Blue, a financial counselor, stated that the average person in the U.S. gives 1.7% of his or her income to charity annually. And he went on to say the average Christian gives only about 2.5%. In fact, our giving today is at a lower level. Hear me. At a lower level than Christians gave during the days of the Great Depression. Lower level today than then. He found out in surveys those earning under 10000 gave 3.6%. From 10000 to 19999 
gave 3.4%. 20,000 to 29,999 gave 2.5%. 30,000 to 39,999 gave 1.8%. 40,000 to 49,999 gave 2.3%. 50,000 to 59,999 gave 2 percent, 75 to 99,999 gave 1.9 percent, and 100,000 and above gave 2.5 percent. Folks, what, what are people doing with the tithe that they're withholding? Now consider the following because this will probably answer that question. In 1950 in the United States, 10 percent of all income was spent for luxuries, personal family luxuries. By 1980, just 30 years later, you know what that number, uh, 10% had gone up to? By 1980, it had already gone up to 30% was spent on personal family luxuries. I like what the famous preacher Peter Marshall said when he offered people a sobering reminder. He said, give according to your income, lest God adjust your income according to your giving. Now I want you to notice they were being offered an invitation here. What was that invitation? Look again in these verses. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now from the, from the time of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 31.11, there was in the sanctuary a storehouse built for depositing the tithes and offerings of, of God's people. Same thing took place in the days of the second temple after it was rebuilt under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, Haggai. Again, there was a storehouse put in. Deuteronomy 14 said that if you lived too far away to bring the things for the storehouse, you were to liquidate them and bring the finances instead. Now, folks, we need to understand that the principle of tithing is timeless. It was neither instituted by the law nor negated by grace. Tithing, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it, it is 400 years older than the law. 400 years older than the law. 400 years before the law, the Bible says Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so it was before the law. Finally, we, we see that it was affirmed by Jesus. And in Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and cumin and herbs and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. He's saying you're neglecting mercy and justice and love while you're being, while he was telling the Pharisees, while you're being so dogmatic about your tithe, you're neglecting the weightier matters. You should have given attention to the weightier matters. He, he didn't say and forget about the other. That's the way the argument's being set up, Right? You should have done the weightier matters and not these lesser things, but he says you should have done the weightier matters and not neglected the other. 
So if Jesus wanted to do away with the tithe, boy, that would have been the perfect opportunity to have done so. And he didn't. Now, God's word teaches us that failure to give the tithe is the same as thievery. In Malachi 3.8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And God insists that, that there will be no blessing until there is repentance in this matter. In Malachi 3.9, he says, You are cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me. And remember what he said to the people in the days of Haggai? He said, do, do, do you not get it? Are you not connecting the dots? Do you not get it? You're bringing home more than you've ever brought home before, but, but I've put holes in your purse, and I, and I blow on it. So you get home, you've got more in your purse than you ever dreamed of having, but you get home, and there's nothing in it. And God says, I'm the one who's done this. I've blown on your wealth because you're looking after your stuff and neglecting my stuff. Strong words, very strong words. Now, in addition to tithes, look what else Malachi 3 mentions here. He mentions offerings. This is the free will offering, which is over and above the basic tithe. The Bible teaches that God demands the tithe, whereas he deserves our offerings. Now, on many cases, we see in the Bible where people gave above and beyond. There was, in the Old Testament, remember, in, in 2 Chronicles, there was the chest of Joash. Remember that? When they decided the temple needed some repairs and they were going to put a chest there, Joash said, uh, just bring extra offerings there, put in there, and then we'll use all that to make the needed repairs. And they finally had to tell the people, what? Stop giving. It's running over. There's too much. But that was additional offerings. And then we're going to look at a case tonight, uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians about the offering that he was taking up for the needy there in Jerusalem. And so free will offerings on top of the tithes we, we see in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, looking back at Malachi 3, we see that if they would address these issues, then they would discover renewed blessing. Look at what he tells them in verse 10. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that they, there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Folks, do you realize that this is the only time I'm aware of in the Bible that God says, try me in this, test me. In other places in the Bible, what are we told? We are told, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But in this matter of our stewardship, God says, test me in this. Try me in this. And he promised a reward. I, I think that today we've got to be very careful though, very careful of saying that God is going to reward us financially. The Bible doesn't necessarily teach that, does it? In fact, do you, do you realize it would, it would be the ruin of some people if God blessed them financially? There's, there's more than one way to bless people, to reward people, right? 
He seems to bless those with an abundance who can handle it. But he blesses obedience in his people in other ways. There's many ways that he might bless you. And he may not reward you until you get home to see him one day. That doesn't mean that he fails to reward you. The the reward is just delayed. But God is promising his people here that he will pour out a blessing on them if they will start obedience in this issue of their giving. As one church leader said in a magazine, he said in stewardship speaking engagements across America and on five continents, I've discovered two things. First, Christians of all income levels have experienced spiritual joy, supernatural grace, and divine help through the practice of making a specific commitment to give 10% or more of their resources to the Lord's work. Secondly, the vast majority of pastors are reluctant to teach their congregations about money matters and Christian giving. But what's the Lord say here? Try me, test me in this, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Heard about a church in Oklahoma that made a pledge to their members that if they tithe for a year and God didn't bless them for it, they would refund what they had given for that year. And I'll make the same pledge to you. If you tithe for a year and God does not bless you for your giving, that church out in Oklahoma will reward you for all of your giving. Will refund, I should say. Now, they were also, look at what else they were being promised here in verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Then look at verse 12. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Folks, could you imagine... What could happen in Christianity today if God's people were obedient in their giving? I mean, I mentioned just this morning that with the IMB, they've got 1,400. And I should say we've got 14 because it's Southern Baptist missionaries. They, they have been to language school. And there in language school, they've learned the culture of the land to which they're, they're going. They've got 1,400 people right now in the pipeline who have already done the language training, the cultural training. They are ready to go. And because of limited resources, we right now can only send 576 out of the 1,400 that are sitting on go. Can you imagine what could happen if God's people gave the way the Bible talks about? What could be accomplished in Jesus' name? What could be done? It's it's limitless. Now, thirdly, I want you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 16 and see that giving is to be regular. 
Giving is to be regular. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2. And regular is the word you're looking for there, number 3 on your notes. Look at what he says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me, accompany me uh, on the journey. Giving is to be regular. I want you to remember what Paul is talking about here was that over and above offering on top of their regular giving. Now, this is evidence right here that Paul had to be a Southern Baptist because we've got, we've got additional offerings for everything, don't we? Paul had to be Southern Baptist. He, he's talking about this special benevolent gift that was to be given to the church at Jerusalem. Now, folks, we need to remember the context, what was going on. The church at Jerusalem. Remember in the book of Acts, what, what happened in the early years in the book of Acts? You, you look at Acts, say, up to chapter, up through chapter 7. What was going on in the church there in Jerusalem? Persecution. So what started happening in chapter 8 of the book of Acts? They started scattering because of the persecution, right? Why were they being persecuted so badly at Jerusalem? Because the religious leaders there, the Jewish people who were so opposed to the gospel. Exactly. And one of the ways Christians faced persecution there at Jerusalem and around Judea was that they would lose their livelihood. Or in the marketplace, people would get to where if word spread that you were a believer, you couldn't sell your goods at, at the marketplace. Or people wouldn't buy your crops or your animals or your, your flour or milk or whatever it was. They wouldn't do business with you. Uh, if you worked in some kind of local uh, industry or whatever, uh, they wouldn't employ you. Christians were kind of locked out of the workforce. And so what happened to a lot of the Christian Jews in Jerusalem? They fell into deep poverty. Now, what was Paul's reasoning? It's very good reasoning, too. He, he says to the uh, Gentile churches, if you have profited so much from the heritage of Jews, because like he says in the book of Romans, Christians, we stand on the shoulders of the Jewish people, don't we? To them belong the covenants, the law, the prophets, and through them even came the Messiah. i tell you what, we have such a debt that we owe to our Jewish brothers. 
And that's why Paul said he was so brokenhearted and grieved over them. That, that he said to this day when Moses is read, that veil is still over their eyes. They, they don't see that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And he said, I, I pray for them. I pray for them and I'm so indebted to them. And he told the Gentile churches, that's, that's what your attitude ought to be as well. Because we owe so much to the Jews. So those, those Jews who had become believers in Jerusalem and formed the church there who were suffering so, the Gentiles needed to help them in their time of suffering. And so Paul was going around the, the Roman Empire uh, back at this time and, and uh, he was getting the Gentile churches to collect an offering and then he was going to take that offering to them. And he's telling those at Corinth principles that, that when they gathered together, look at what he's saying, when they gathered together on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up. Regular giving. When we give that way, it's not so noticeable, is it? It doesn't hurt so bad. Because when you just give as a way of life, you set a little uh, part aside, you learn to live on, on the rest. It's not like you're having to dig deep one time a year and just, whoa, go into, go into savings or something. You, you've, you've had the practice of setting aside a little bit all along. And so the, the, the principle of, of regularity in their giving on the first day of the week, he's telling them to set aside a little something. And then also there's the principle here of accountability. He says, when I come, uh, some of you folks, whoever you want to select, get them to take that money to Jerusalem. If you want to give it to me, then, then they're going to go with me. There's going to be some accountability. That's wise, isn't it? It's very wise. But a principle of regular giving. Giving to the Lord's work that be, just becomes second nature to us. Like, like combing your hair or brushing your teeth. It just becomes a part of what we do. It's a part of our worship. Well, fourthly, I, I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians 8 and, and see here that giving should be in spite of of one's circumstances, in spite of one's circumstances. He says in verses 1 and 2, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul holds the impoverished churches of Macedonia up as an example to Corinth. Now, what would the churches of Macedonia have been? What, what congregations were there? Does anybody remember? Philippi? Thessalonica? 
And what was one other church nearby Thessalonica? That they were noble. Berea, because they looked deeply into the things of the word. Those are examples of the churches of Macedonia. Now, what had happened to make them so needy in Macedonia? Well, just previous to, to this time, they had been a war-torn area. Like in recent decades. In recent decades, we've seen that same thing in this area of the world. Uh, it's the former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, that area. That in recent decades, so much fighting and warfare and civil war and strife has gone on. It's, it's that same area. And all that had been going on in ancient times as well. And it had taken a toll on the people of that region. So much infighting and war. They had suffered. Now, even as Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, this area was again being hit hard by the Romans. So they were going through a lot. And yet, notice what their attitude was. In the midst of their need, God had been at work. God had been gracious and provided for them. God's grace was poured out on them. And so they wanted the opportunity to give in response to that. Now folks, isn't that the right Christian attitude in giving? Have you been a recipient of God's grace? Has God been good to you and your family? And uh, are you and your family, are you saved? I mean, just count your blessings. And in light of that, he's saying... They wanted to give. Verse 2 says their outer circumstances were great trials. And yet their trials had not stolen their gratitude to God. And so they wanted to give to help others. Now folks, notice what he says about them in this. And we'll say more about this again in a minute. But notice what he says. They, they begged for the opportunity to give. Boy, now, wouldn't that be a preacher's dream? <laughs> Ushers pass the plate and people look at it. Preacher, we want to give more. Make sure the ushers pass that plate once again. Well, that'd be great. That's how they were, though. Now, think of an obvious application to this, though. Their, their circumstances were so bad, and they wanted to get. What do we want so oftentimes? We want everything to be just right before we give, right? Don't we? Sure we do. Or we'll say, you know, I'll, I'll give to God when I can afford it. I actually had a man tell me this one time, a man in my first church out of seminary, and I had not asked him about his giving. I guess a guilty conscience, he just sort of just started pouring out all this to me. But he said, Preacher, my wife and I, we, we just can't afford to give right now. 
Now, mind you, they had just built a beautiful new home on 10 acres of land. They had bought a new Jeep, four-wheel drive Jeep Cherokee. He had a boat, and they had a place at the lake, Smith Mountain Lake up near Roanoke. He said, preacher, we just can't afford to give. He told me that standing out in his driveway. The churches of Macedonia looked at their meager resources, and you know what they saw? They saw God's grace. And so they considered it a privilege to give to others. At Christmas time one year, there were all sorts of organizations asking for money, just, just like organizations do today. And one man talked about how deeply he resented it. The president of Miami Christian College, Mr. Pearson, he spoke up. He said, you know, you're right. There are a lot of people asking for things, but, but I want to tell you a story, a true story that happened to me. He said, I had a little boy. And that little boy was costing me money all the time. We'd get him this and this and this. It was always something. I told my wife, this, this child's going to break us. Every time we turn around, we're buying him something. He's going to break us. He said, then my little boy died. He said, folks, I wish he was still around costing me money. I wish he was still around so I could sacrifice and provide things for him. We need to keep things in perspective, don't we? It's a privilege to give. Giving should be in spite of our circumstances. Number five, giving should be according to one's ability and sacrificial at the same time. Look what he said in verse three, for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. Notice he says here they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. Now that's an interesting paradox, isn't it? According to their ability, they figured out what they could really afford to give and then beyond their ability, after figuring out what they could afford to give, they gave a little bit more. Generous hearts. Verse 3 says they did this willingly. In fact, verse 4 says they were eager, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift. That's one of the most astounding testimonies in the whole Bible when it comes to giving. They were poor, but they gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability. You can, you can almost imagine Paul saying, now, now folks, that, that's, that's a bit much. Come on now, now stop. And they weren't satisfied to stop. 
It was cold and in the middle of winter. The man parked his new shiny car next to the curb to go into the store and pick up his morning paper. He noticed a dirty little boy sitting by the curb eyeballing his new automobile. The man thought, I'd better hurry. This guy's going to steal my hubcaps. Coming out of the store, he was getting in his car. When the little boy asked, Mister, how much would a car like that cost? The man replied, I wouldn't know. My brother gave it to me. That ragged-looking little boy said, Gee, I wish I could be a brother like that. Not I wish I had a brother like that, but I wish I could be a brother like that. Now, how do you get people to this point? Look at verse 5. He says that they gave first of themselves to God. He says, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, that's the key right there, isn't it? You win that battle right there and you've won the rest. They gave themselves first to God if a man gives himself first to God you know what you're not going to have to beg him to do you're not going to have to beg him to serve in the kingdom of God and you're not going to have to beg him to give he's going to do that just out of his redeemed nature and because he's made that offering of his life to God his attitude's been changed if we don't want to give and don't want to serve, then we need to ask ourselves, have we really given ourselves first to God? Because again, that's the battle. You win that battle, you got to rest. And then notice what he goes on to say here. We must get people to understand God's grace. Look at what he tells them in verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command but to, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is so genuine for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What do Christians need to understand? We need to understand that we serve a generous, gracious God who gives. John 3.16 says, For what? For God so loved the world that he gave. Then what's Philippians 2 say about Jesus? Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, a servant, and he died a death, even death on a cross. When we understand the grace of God that we serve a God who gives it's his nature to give. And if he didn't give, neither you nor I would have any type of hope whatsoever. And so when we give, you know what we're showing? 
We're just showing the family resemblance when we give. Family resemblance. Hebrews 12.4 says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, look at verses 13 to 15. Interesting perspective here. 13 to 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. What, what Paul's basically saying here, be, be careful about giving yourself into poverty to, to the point that you then become the burden. The abundance that the Corinthians had could supply the lack that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had and then one day the situation may be turned around. But the point is we're a body of believers. We're to help those out according to what we can do knowing that the time may come that the shoe may be on the other foot. Give generously. Give generously. Knowing that the time may come when you're the one standing in need. Now look at verse 15. The the example of, of Exodus and the manna. What, what was the lesson? Remember back to the Old Testament. What was the lesson about manna? You give day by day, and those that uh, they, they would gather according to their family's needs. Some gathered a lot because they had more to feed. Some gathered a little. What happened to those who didn't need a lot but tried to gather a lot and save it? It rotted and maggots got in it, right? They were greedy. They were hoarding. And so he uses that as an example to stay away from. And then six, I want you to notice here that he points out that giving has its rewards. Look over at chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written... He has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God rewards the the giver in proportion to his giving. That's one of the laws of the harvest. Now the first law of the harvest is what? It's mentioned in Galatians 6, 6 and 7. What's that law of the harvest? The first law of the harvest. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. That's the first law of the harvest. The second law of the harvest is what we see right here. 
you reap in accordance with what you've sown. Some have called it the echo principle. Here's a farmer who says, you know what? I need a big, 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 big harvest this next year. I need a big harvest. But I don't have much right now, so I'm, I'm just going to sow just a little bit, just itty bitty bit, and try to make it go a long way. Is he going to get a big harvest? No. Because Paul says, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Now he goes on to say here, now each person gives, you, you determine, you know, he's not forcing them, he's not twisting their arm, he's not telling all of them out there, you got to be the, the big, 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 big sower. He's just saying, consider what kind of harvest you want. If you want a big harvest, you got to sow big. If you want a small harvest, all you got to do is sow sparingly. But just, just remember that. And you know, churches need to remember that in a lot of different ways too. If we want to see souls saved, what do what we got to be out there doing? What do we got to be sowing? The Word of God. What about a church that sits back and says, Man, I wish we were baptizing every week. But nobody ever talks about Jesus to anybody. Nobody ever goes out on visitation. Nobody ever shares their testimony. Is their desire consistent with their action? No. If they want to reach people, they've got to sow the seed. And he said it's the same principle here in giving. And he's, he's telling them, you've you got a purpose in your own heart. But just know whatever you purpose in your own heart... The principle, the echo principle, you're going to reap according to what you've sown. And in proportion, I should say, to what you've sown. Now, again, let's, let's talk about the application that you're to decide. You're to decide. I, I remember at a pastor's conference one time, it was love offering time and the Speaker got up and said, I tell you what, for these speakers, we, you know, we need to support them. He got out his wallet and he thumbed through it. And, and he pulled out a, a big bill. And he waved it around and said, this is what I'm going to give. And I'm asking you to give the same. I sat there and thought in my heart, no, 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 no. What did Jesus say? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't advertise what you give. Nobody else needs to know. You shouldn't have to be begged though. Whatever you purpose in your heart. Mark Twain said one time he went to church. He was so disgusted by the high pressure to give. He decided he wasn't going to give. The minister continued. Mark Twain said, Then I decided that not only would I not give, but he had hounded us so bad, I was going to take some out of the plate when it came around. <laughs> Don't do that. Now what does he say here? What does God love? God loves what? 
a cheerful giver. It's the word from which we get our English word, hilarious. Hilarious. God loves a cheerful giver. Not somebody who grumbles about it, complains about it, gripes about it, grudgingly does it, but somebody who considers it a privilege. Again, because you're going back to the grace of God. God's nature is to give. We've received so much. And so it is a privilege in our service to honor God with a portion of what He blesses us with. Not sad giving, not mad giving, but glad giving. Now, I want to close by giving some principles for stewardship. Number one, recognize who deserves the credit. What does society value and applaud? And it's not what we're talking about tonight. What's society value? A self-made man. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And many are obsessed with, with getting ahead, living the good life, having that kind of security. And a lot of people regard that what they have is theirs by right. They've earned it through their own initiative. They deserve it. Not what the Bible says. The Bible says no. In James, James chapter 1, James says, All good and perfect gifts come down from above. All blessings in our life can ultimately be traced back to God. You got a good job? Who gave you that? You got the wisdom to have that job? Who gave you the smarts and the wisdom to have that job? Or the educational requirements that you had to go through? Who allowed you to do all that? God did. God did. And if you need a fresh perspective on that, walk down a hospital hall where people are dying or crippled or can't talk or see or whatever. God's given you and me whatever abilities that we have. Right? Man doesn't possess his own time and life, and gifts, and wealth. He manages them. We are not owners. We are stewards. We are stewards. God is the owner of all things. The psalmist said he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's just a way of saying God owns it all. It all belongs to him. He owns the hills too. Secondly, beware of accountability. Be aware of accountability. The Bible says that one day we're going to stand before God and give an account. Third principle, in stewardship we must first give ourselves to God. We've already covered that tonight, just summarizing some principles from what we've covered tonight. In stewardship, we must first give ourselves to God. Fourthly, stewardship, including what we do with our finances, is actually a part of our worship. It's more than just sitting down and writing a check. It's part of our worship. 
Fifthly, a fundamental lesson for Christians is that we cannot outgive God. He's no man's debtor. Henry Parsons uh, Crowell, the builder of the great Quaker Oats cereal enterprise, when asked for his average rate of giving, he said, for over 40 years I've given 60 to 70% of my income to God. But I've never gotten ahead of God. He's always stayed ahead of me. You can't outgive God. Does God have your best? Are you giving God the best? Or are you doing like in Malachi's day and just giving God the leftovers and giving God really that which costs you nothing? Shouldn't that be a yellow flag? Shouldn't that be a caution flag? If I'm just giving God the leftovers and that which costs me nothing... That ought to to be a warning to me. My heart may not be in the right place. What recommitment might you need to make in the area of giving? Are you willing to test God out in this? Remember that church in Oklahoma will reimburse you. (laughs) Are you willing to put God to the test? The goal, the goal is 10%. That's biblical. I, I don't feel like as preacher of the word of God, I can commend anything less to you. But if you're not giving 10%, I'd say start somewhere and build up to that. But 10%, the tithe, is the basic And then offerings above and beyond that. Give cheerfully. That's the kind of giver God is after. If you never give sacrificially, think of this, then you will never know what the Bible is talking about. When we see examples of those in the Scripture who did anything sacrificially, whether it was some act of service or giving, if we never serve or give sacrificially, we will never be able to relate to those figures in the Bible who counted it a joy and a blessing to be able to do that. Does God have what He wants most? Does He have your heart? Stewardship. Stewardship of God's truth, guarding it, sharing it with others. Stewardship of your life, Romans 12.1. Stewardship of your spiritual gift. Stewardship of your time. And stewardship of your resources. Every area of life is to be under the umbrella of His grace and Lordship. Even our giving is to be a testimony 
as to where our heart is. Jesus said it would be so, right? He said it would be. And he said we can't serve God and money. And so your giving is a reflection of a, of a whole lot more than your bank account. It's a window into a man's heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these lessons that we've covered on stewardship. And I trust that you've used each one individually to either encourage or prick someone's heart. Lord, we know that when we do talk about money and finances, it makes people nervous today. And yet it's something that Jesus covered repeatedly in the Scripture. And it's something very tangible and measurable. We're either doing it or we're not doing it. There's no cover-up in this. So it's very measurable. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives. Because if you didn't, we wouldn't even be sitting here tonight as the redeemed of the Lord. Help our heart to be more like yours. And Lord, if in anything that we've covered tonight, we find ourselves being less than how we ought to be giving, that each one privately in his or her own heart right now would just quietly reflect on the steps that they need to take to get things right with you. And God, I pray that they would just sense renewed blessing however it is that you choose to bless them. And Lord, that not just this church, but all churches who try to preach your word and all mission organizations through the giving of God's people would be blessed. That we would have exactly what you've determined we need to do the ministry you've called us to do. Some go, others give. We can all do something. Help us to be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.